Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. Today I'm with a good friend, Terrence Chan. He is a poker professional, also an MMA fighter. And I like the way that he says it on his Twitter bio, gambling fighting dad. He's also an OG in the poker world with over a million dollars in live earnings. And he's the host of the popular Dat Poker podcast along with Daniel Negreanu and Adam Schwartz and he posts thoughtful takes on his blog, TerrenceChanPoker.com, as well as his Twitter, TChanPoker. Terrence, so glad to finally have you on. Well, thanks, and I'm so honored to be on. Like, I've really enjoyed your scavenger hunt, um, and you've been doing awesome things and innovative concepts in the poker world. So, you know, you've had such great guests on here that I hope that even though I'm going to talk about the Nutlow hand, I'm hoping not to be the Nutlow interview that you've done. But um, at least at least at the very least, I'm glad to help out a friend by filling out that bottom right hand corner. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I Because the Nutlow hand, right, there's that big debate. Is it seven deuce off or three deuce off? Right. Uh, yeah, I guess like seven deuce is like the slightly better multi-way hand. Or, or sorry, three deuce is probably the slightly better multi-way hand because it has can make the wheel. But like trash is trash right and then nobody ever plays like the three deuce off game it's always the seven deuce off game so people find excuses to play seven deuce so like three deuce is probably like if you want to talk about the the worst of the worst it's like it's probably the worst i mean i don't know but again i'm just i'm just hoping not to be the worst interview out of the 169 it's not high standards for me but you've had such great guests on that i don't want to screw it up for you Sorry, Maria Konnikova, your nut low hand <laughs> is going out the window as Terrence is taking it. But the nice thing about this hand is it's a big throwback hand, right? This is going to be one of our, our earlier hands. It was held at 2006 at the World Series of Poker, yeah. right? Do you want to set up the stage for us? Sure. I mean, 2006, I'm sure a lot of your listeners weren't playing poker back in 2006, especially the younger ones, but it was a crazy time. Uh, UIGA was five letters nobody would have ever thought to strung together. Um, we're just in the throes of the moneymaker effect. So, you know, we've had the first uh, ESPN ones. The World Series has just moved to the Rio in 05. So, you know, this is like a crazy wild time for poker. Everybody is super excited about it. It was, you know, the kind of situation where everybody you knew was playing poker. So being a professional poker player in those days and have, and already having known how to play poker when Moneymaker won the World Series was just a massive advantage. And the, the, the standard of play was just incredibly poor. The economy was really good. The economic crisis hadn't happened yet. And so, yeah, 2006 was actually my, my first full schedule at the World Series, the Rio, after, you know, quitting my job with PokerStars in 2004. So 2006, um, I, as I mentioned, it's my first full schedule, and I am deep in, I'm not even sure what member of the event is, I think it's a $2,500 no limit. And um, we are at the last three tables, um, and Eric Lindgren is on my immediate left. And um, again, this is 2006. I don't. I wish I had like a, a Poker News live reporting that could go back and tell me all the stack sizes and all the bet sizes, but I just can't. So I'm just gonna. I'm gonna do my best. Um, but the really important thing to note is that Eric. Lindgren, who is on a medium shortish stack, and I'm on a big stack, and Eric's on my immediate left, and as the dealer's pitching cards, we notice that he's actually posted what he thinks is the big blind, but I'm the big blind. So I'm the big blind, Eric's to my left, and he's essentially blind limped under the rules because he's got an undergun out there. And I think three people just like, three or four people just snap fold and we're and then before anybody notices so we have to call the floor over and of course i'm sure you know the ruling uh the floor rules that that you know substantial action has happened and eric's what he thought was a big blind is, is essentially like a blind call um it folds around to me in the big blind and i have as you probably guessed from the header of the show three deuce offsuit now i think any poker player today knows that you just kind of 
be happy, check your options, see a flop, hope you hit something, and then try to figure it out post. But I was bad at poker just like everybody else was bad at poker in 2006, and I just decided like blind aggression would win the day because this was a period of time where blind aggression just did really well. Again, there's all the reasons not to raise your option here. Like, you have card removal effect. The fact that, like, eight other people have folded means that Eric is more than likely to have a good hand with his two random cards that aren't random anymore. The fact that I've deuced three offsuit. I obviously don't have lockers to anything. It's less likely that this steal will get through. Um, but all I know at this point is, like, I have lots of chips. Eric has very few chips. And that just raising like a crazy person has gotten me this far in this poker tournament. So I raise. So I think I probably make it like 3x and he calls. The flop comes down ace-deuce-3. So I flop bottom two pair on an ace-high board. I bet, again, I don't remember what I bet, but it was probably something quite small. I think back then even I knew that like small ace-high boards at the stack depth probably you bet small. Uh, and Eric moved all in pretty quickly and I of course called. He had ace-4, so he had a lot of outs, uh, but he did not improve, and um, he was pretty frustrated to go over to the rail, but it's, it's, such a, it's such a terrible... If anything encapsulates 2006 poker, and, and I know that all your listeners are just like laughing at how bad people played back then, but this was standard. Both Eric and I were professional poker players at the time. Like, he probably already had, like, $2 million in earnings, and, like, he just blind limped under the gun because he wasn't paying attention. And here I am, this dummy with the nut low hand and no blockers and anti-card removal. Okay, I'll just raise. As it turns out, it probably wouldn't matter because it's such a cooler flop. Like, there's, there's no way with his stack size, whatever it was, probably like 20 bigs, that he wasn't going broke. But it's just, it's such an atrociously badly played hand, and I'm embarrassed to even tell you about it. But, you know, I think 14 years later is a good time to, to admit to being really dumb. Well, let's, let's go back to the very beginning, because I think that this is a situation a lot of people have been in where, you know, you're tired, you or somebody at the table accidentally post their big blind because they lost track of the action. Um, but it seems like now, probably because, you know, dealers have been around a lot longer, that usually the dealer catches it really quickly so that it doesn't come to the, the, the point that it came in your hand where the, uh, the limp stands. Yeah, but even still, and that, you know, you're probably right, you know, the quality of dealers is better now and they're a little more on the ball. But even still, like, people make mental errors and there's all sort of weird things that happen, like, the big blind will walk away from the table because it's the dinner break or whatever. You, there's all kinds of, like, weird dead money situations that occurred. A guy will clearly misclick. You know, you, you play a, an event and, you know, you have an inexperienced player and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll accidentally string raise or something like that. Or Weird stuff always kind of happens in live poker that you can, you know, you have to try to figure a way around. But for, for some reason, I just, when it folded around to me, I just lost my mind and I was like, raise. And like I said, you know, I've only been a pro poker player for a year at this point and I don't have a lot of live poker experience. And everything to this point was just me like raising and picking up blinds. So I, I don't think I was really ready for the big time yet. Uh, on the other hand, like I, even though it doesn't sound like it, I probably still had a better theoretical understanding of poker than most people did at 2006. But you still make dumb decisions in the heat of the moment. It's, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But you were 100% sure that he hadn't like, um, that he had actually blind limped, like you, you were watching him when he did it. Because of course, there's always that concern that if you raise that the guy actually had looked at his cards and he's leveling you. Yeah, well, the, an, another reason to, that it, it's an incredibly stupid thing to raise your option there and suddenly take a free flop. Yeah, if you, were, if you were way overly aggressive in those days, it probably worked out really well. Like, if, as long as you're not trying to, like, bluff into five people or something like that. Like, I think just aggression just worked really well in these, play, in these ways and people really under-defended on essentially every street. And so, yeah, like, it's hard to get out of that mode where something is just working, so you just keep doing it. Like I said, a lot of it was, wasn't was exploitive of Eric. It was exploitive, you know, and I want to make sure this is exploitive in, square, in scare quotes. It's not like real good poker theory, but just the fact that I had like a top five stack and he had probably a, a bottom 10 stack and we're, we're at three tables, like things are significant. So I'm just like, I have more chips than you. I put in more. And that's a dumb way to think about poker. We appreciate that in 2020. We probably appreciated that in like 2012. But in 2006, it, it just seemed reasonable. Just, just fire away. <laughs> yeah, it really is amazing though. Um, and he did call with the ace four offsuit. And then when you guys got it all in on the flop, what was his reaction when he saw your hand? Oh, he was, he was, disgusted. I mean, I don't know if he reacted exactly to the hand, but obviously like the situation to ever find yourself three tables, you know, left in a bracelet event that had 
a lot of people in it I don't remember but like you know it's it's hard to get to that point and to, and to realize that you just you know we know because he had ace four offsuit that it wasn't a trap it was a misclick that he just misclicked his entire tournament away had to I, I I did feel bad for him in the moment as I'm breaking in chips and probably becoming the chip leader of the tournament at that point yeah I mean he was he was probably grossed out by it but I mean Eric was a, a volume player back then he probably just I mean, I don't know if you could jump into the next tournament that day. I think you had to, like, actually wait till the next day for a poker tournament to start. I'm sure he had some other things that he could gamble yeah, on. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, as, uh, yeah, he, he's known as a, a big gambler who got himself into some trouble with, uh, with that, getting into a lot of debt. Yeah, exactly. And, and none of that stuff was really publicly known at that time. It was just like, oh, he's this high roller boss guy. And I, I remember, you know, he, I think he'd like set a record on Poker Stars for like the most World Series seats won ever because he would just grind like $1,000 satellites on Poker Stars and just, um, you know, you won 37 seats to the main event or something ridiculous he was a, like a, a grinder and a high stakes gambler and, and he loved action and as you mentioned he probably loved action a little too much in the end but it was a double-edged sword in those days like now the poker world is is filled with essentially like the pros are people who manage their money well people who study like i mean there's some degens for for sure but back then like a lot of the best poker players in the world were just like degens who found a way to channel their degen energy into something they thought about the game and they studied in their own way but it wasn't it wasn't like today where where people were very meticulous about bankroll management and study and doing the right thing and having an edge when you get your money in and you know all that kind of stuff people were just looking for outlets to gamble and it's like oh this is an outlet to gamble that i happen to be better than most people at the thing about now is even though there is degen energy now as well in poker world i feel like a lot of it comes from sources of money outside the poker economy like you know inherited money family money that it somehow like finds itself in the poker world because poker is like a really fun thing to do it's not really coming from like the edge in poker necessarily well that's always been a part of a poker right like so from from the early days you know from nick the greek playing against johnny moss up until today there have always been whales sort of feeding the ecosystem and that's always been critical and important but as I, as I said this hand took place in 2006 and I you know in sort of preparation for this I tried to you know I couldn't find that hand online but I, I tried to find like other hands it's just silly how bad the level of poker was because again it's 2006 like the economy is booming the stock market is up like you know Chris Moneymaker's three years off the World Series Jamie Gold this year would end up winning the largest main event ever um, by playing what everybody thinks is just terrible poker and just getting it in bad over and over but like the quality of play was just really poor if you can try to find like a live blog from 06 07 and just see how bad people are at playing poker like even the professionals were bad at, at playing poker so like later on in this tournament i would end up finishing eighth i'd make the final table i was crippled on a hand where like justin peachy another poker pro shoved on me with seven five offsuit and like he busted my ace queen and like again professional poker player like all the professional poker players in 2006 were really bad at poker. It's just some were less bad, and the ratio of pros to whales was, was quite small. You, you said you came in eighth in the end? Yeah. Okay, so a nice score, probably. Yeah, it was. I, I mean, again, for a poker player starting out, that was like a big deal. Always like disappointing because I think I came in second in chips that day. Um, but it was a memorable one, too. I remember it was, I think uh, Max Pescatori ended up winning, and it was the day after Italy won the World, or it was the day that Italy won the World Cup of Soccer. And Max had actually like shown up late to the final table because he was watching Italy and Jack Full actually delayed it because Max said he was late because of traffic. But we all knew like it's Max Piscatori. He's, he's sitting at home watching the World Cup of Soccer. <laughs> wow. That, that is pretty astonishing. This is like stuff that wouldn't happen again today. And I, you know, and we were a little bit mad at the time. Seven, you know, eight of us sitting at the table waiting for Max, knowing that he clearly just was watching the soccer game. But, you know, it was a different era. How long were you waiting again? Probably 40 minutes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that is, that is hilarious. And um, I saw that your biggest, one of your biggest scores was for a quarter of a million dollars also in a WSOP event. So you've come close to a bracelet in making final tables. Yeah. Um, now that you don't play quite as much poker, does that weigh on you? It's always there that I'd, I'd wished I had been able to close one out because, yeah, I've almost sort of hit for the cycle. I've, I, you know, in terms of final table finishes, I have like a second, a third, a fourth, like a sixth, a seventh, an eighth or something like that. Like, I think I've finished almost every position other than like first and fifth. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. But, you know, it's run bad at the, at the clear opportunities. And, yeah, sometimes you just, you know, that's the way it is. You, you always wish it were, but you can't 
you just have to think that you're blessed in life and and we're we're blessed to even be able to play this game whether we were playing at professionals or amateurs like your life is just in the top one percent of all possible outcomes if you're playing a poker tournament at the rio like like just just think about that for a second and compare yourself to the mean or median outcome in the world like it means you grew up probably in a reasonably wealthy country to to parents who cared about you and loved you and like you were able to go to school, you know, at least for some period of time. And you were eventually able to get to the circumstances where you could put up whatever, anywhere between five hundred and ten thousand dollars to play in a World Series of Poker event. You have to express some gratitude about that. So yeah, the competitive part of me and, and Jen, as you know, like I'm a competitive person. I do all this crazy competitive shit all the time. Yeah, of course. I mean, finishing second, finishing third, finishing fourth, they are all very disappointing and very bitter. But you, you have to look on it with a realistic attitude like, first of all, what did it take to get that point? It took me luck boxing my way with Deuce 3 offsuit, playing it terribly and just like getting a cooler flop. And yeah, so later on I got bad beat with Ace-Queen against 7-5 as a, you know, whatever, 62% favorite. Like, it's dumb to, to dwell on that stuff. But yeah, of course, you know, you always want to win a bracelet. Who doesn't want to win a bracelet who plays this game? Yeah, but that's a great perspective. I mean, I totally agree with you. And I think that people do realize that consciously, but then they get this tunnel vision where they're thinking just about, their poker and how unlucky they got or all these bad beats. Oh yeah, like in the moment, I'm not thinking about I could be a starving kid. Like I'm thinking, fuck, like I can't believe that I ran this bad at this final table. I mean, I'm, I don't say this to say like, oh, I have this great perspective on, you know, I'm so zen and so chill about everything because of course in the moment it's terrible and we're all competitors and we all want to win everything all the time. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, Phil Hellmuth with his 14 bracelets or whatever still throws a hissy fit every time, you know, he, he gets a bad beat. But, you know, when you step back from a moment, you're able to step back and think, oh, I, I ran pretty good to get there. And, you know, you're just running pretty good in life to be at the position you are now. That's great advice. Now, you talk about your competitive instinct. So, of course, you kind of in the tail end of your very serious poker career, you became an MMA fighter, getting to be as high as number seven in the Canadian professional MMA. Oh, wow. You've done your homework on this stuff. (laughs) No, that sounded really high, though. I mean, especially since you started in your 30s, right? What is the peak age for an MMA fighter? And do you feel like um, now you recently wrote a blog where you said you've pretty much retired, at least for the near future. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your MMA career? Did you kind of come into that with um, this initial aggressive instinct that you mentioned in this three-deuce offhand? <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a correlation between raising three-deuce off as an option and, and wanting to get in cages to fight. I don't know, it could be. I took up MMA towards the end of my serious pro career, so m- most people know that who, kn- who know who I am know I was like a limit hold'em specialist, and I, I made a lot of money playing heads-up and shorthanded limit hold'em in the late 2000s. Um, that's where most of my income came for that period of time, but around, I'm not sure exactly when, probably around that 2009 to 2011 period, I, I just wasn't getting action. I would sit at 100, 200, 200, 400, 500,000, and I would, Blockbuster Video was still a thing, so I have a very distinct memory of going to video stores, getting DVDs, putting them in a DVD player, and just um, watching a movie while I had a PokerStars window open and just seeing if anybody would show up and play. And sometimes I would make it through a whole, you know, two-hour movie without anybody playing. And even when I did play I didn't. I didn't have the love of it that I that I used to have. I mean, there's still, of course, the adrenaline rush of playing high stakes poker, but a lot of it just felt like a grind, you know. And it's a weird thing where you're waiting, essentially, to show up for work, waiting for people to play poker with you, and then once they do sit down and play poker with you, you're just hoping to bust them as quickly as you can so that you can go on and do another thing. It's like such a weird thing to be, okay, well, now I'm at work now. This is what I waited all day for. And then very quickly, it's like, when is this going to be done? And so I, I thought that like playing poker had very much become a job to me. Um, and I needed another outlet. And the other thing about, of course, playing poker, as you know, is, is it's a sedentary activity. I've never been a good athlete, but I've always been a physical person and I've always enjoyed physically doing things. So I started taking kickboxing classes. My cousin was really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he introduced me to some classes and I I started getting into jiu-jitsu myself. And a lot of the times when you join a jiu-jitsu gym, there are the higher level guys there and you see them and they do MMA fights. And uh, that starts to get really, you know, to me that was, I was hooked. Like when I started watching 
teammates of mine competing in MMA, I was like, oh, I want to do that. I really want to do that one day. Completely oblivious to the sort of danger that's inherent in such a sport. I wanted I wanted to do this because, um, you know, anybody who's done jujitsu realizes like how much fun it is to grapple with people and to, to test your, your physical strength and your physical skill against them. It, it definitely scratched an itch that poker had occupied for, for most of the 2000s and the late 90s for me from when I started just being really obsessed about poker. I was able to channel that into being really obsessed in, with martial arts and MMA. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, because obviously when you're playing limit, you're playing a lot of heads up limit hold'em. As you mentioned, playing very high stakes on poker stars up to 500, 1000, right? Was that the highest? I played 1,000, 2,000 a couple times, but I, I, it seemed like I got crushed every time I played 1,000, 2,000, and, and you don't want to take those hits, so I, I, I went back down pretty quickly. So 500, 1,000 was the stake that you played regularly, but yeah. you know, battling with somebody for um, many hours, like how did that compare, that kind of mental battle compared to you know, your MMA experience? Oh, it's totally different because, I mean, I think most people who listen to this know what it feels like to go heads up with somebody for just 12 hours. And most of the battle is just, it's it's kind of staying focused and not getting into like button clicking and being present in the moment and just trying, you know, you're not going to be able to play your A game for tw 10 hours straight, but at least trying to play like a B, B plus level game where you're competent and you're not giving up edges and you're not just like misreading the board and doing crazy stuff because you're playing until four in the morning. Whereas like MMA, I, I took it very differently. I, I would say I approached MMA the way a lot of like the, the archetypal German high roller would approach it, you know, the way you meditate and eat good food and be ready. So like, when I trained MMA, you know, if, if the class, the training session was going to be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. or something like that, you know, I'd, I'd have my meal at, at 4 o'clock and, you know, your pre-workout and, you know, you meditate and you do all your stretches. You get there early, you warm up and then you train. And then after the meal, after the training session, you eat the right thing and you get a good night's sleep. And, you know, if the next day you're beat up, you get a massage, you do your float tank or your sauna or whatever recovery tool. I, I approached it very scientifically and I approached poker scientifically too. I mean, I think we're of like minds that way. But, you know, you talk about how I achieved more in MMA than maybe my, like, athleticism or the age at which I started would have suggested. And I think it's only because I approached it in that way. Because there's no way, like, if, if somebody takes up a, a competitive sport at age 30 without a significant athletic background, usually they're not going to get very far if they just kind of do the same thing everybody else is doing. Because those people have been training since they were 12. So, yeah, I mean, that I don't know if that fully answers your question. But the, the grind, I think, is very different from the MMA grind, which usually, you're, you know, you're, you're still you're training two, three hours a day. And a lot of the time, if you're doing it right, the times that you're not training in the gym, you're, you know, you're watching video, you're, you're doing mental stuff. It's again, a lot, I, I approached it the way that, that people approach poker now. I took it very seriously. And I think that sort of idea is coming a little bit to MMA, but still MMA is full of 2006 poker players, if you will, just people who are like just doing stuff and hoping it works and getting by on athleticism and talent. And, and that still works to some extent. But in the end, MMA is going to evolve into a sport where the people who do it seriously, who take it seriously, they take their recovery seriously and how they how they work out and how they train and what kind of food they put in their body and how they sleep. Like it's going to be more scientific. Um, like I think everything evolves eventually that way. Does discipline come naturally to you? Because I have, uh, you know, stayed with you and your your girlfriend, and it seems like you are a very disciplined person. You know, you plan you, you plan your food. If you buy a chocolate bar for the whole week, you're going to eat, you know, one-seventh of it every day. You know, staying with me, of course, wrecks those plans. <laughs> you need to have a second chocolate bar hidden somewhere. But, like, does that come naturally to you, or did you have to, like, hone that skill? That's a great question. I, d I don't know if it comes... I think, I think I've always been a person who gets a weird kick out of things like delayed gratification and work ethic and discipline and stuff like that. I think I would say I'm like way less disciplined now that I, I don't um, now that I don't compete. It's a complex thing. Like I think I think discipline when you're talking about the concept of things like nutrition, I think I think discipline is the thing that you practice in the grocery store, not at the restaurant or at home. If you don't want to eat the chocolate bar, it's probably better just to not buy the chocolate bar when you're at the store. And that goes into not being hungry when you go to the grocery store and, and just kind of tracing all of those steps back. So I don't know if I'm, I'm naturally disciplined. I think it's something that's developed and, and it's, it's more just keeping your eye on the prize, right? Like, what's the goal? So when I was, when I was staying with you, I was still in the midst of, of competing as a fighter. And, and I knew, like I said, I, I don't have this natural athleticism. 
I don't have the advantage of having started young. I started late. I'm older than most of my competitors. I'm not as naturally gifted. Like, of course I can't just eat chocolate bars and ice cream and pretzels. Or else, like, what shot do I have, right? If you're the short stack, you have to find a way to stack the deck in your favor. Like, it, you know, you can't just wing it. And if I did that like everybody else, like, I would have lost every fight because I just, I wasn't that good. And and it's it's a testament to the fact that I was able to win fights at all that, it, it's it's a testament to, to just being disciplined because I would have had no shot. I'm not an athlete. I'm a nerd. Like I've, you know, I'm always like a bookish kid and I, I spent all of my 20s playing poker. Like the, by no right should I have ever been a competitive fighter. Do you feel like with all this nutrition and meditation that poker players are now espousing, which is sometimes, you know, clogging up feeds is... <laughs> It's like, it's so omnipresent, maybe even more like a year or two ago. Um, but I, is there anything that you feel like people are kind of getting wrong? Because obviously you had more of a professional look at it in that you were in a world where people were, you know, building their bodies for a living. Whereas I guess in poker, it makes a difference, but it's still secondary to... Totally. You know. So there's, there's sort of two things that you mentioned, and I'll, I'll try to tackle both of them. But I think... What people are doing wrong, I mean, I don't want to say like you're eating this wrong or you're doing this wrong. I think the big issue that I have right now with with poker nutrition Twitter, as, as we might call it, is that people are so remarkably sure of themselves. And there's a crazy like Dunning-Kruger thing that's happening with, with poker nutrition Twitter where, you know, read a few books, listened to a few podcasts, and all of a sudden they've got all the answers. And people are starting to get very dogmatic. And once, and I, and I definitely went through that phase myself. Um, and I went through that phase with poker. I mean, I think we all do, right? When we start to get really into something, we start to think we, we know it all. And then we gradually creep ahead to the point where we realize maybe I should have questioned those initial assumptions. Like maybe the scope of this thing is bigger than I thought, right? Like 10 years ago, limping with a 15 big blind stack, you would have been a fish. But now people are like, oh, I've actually, we've run these sims and we can limp with a balanced range and, and you know, make slightly more profit than if we play jam or fold. I think poker nutrition, meditation, wellness Twitter is at that point a little bit now. Or as Jamie calls it, her muted accounts. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? I would have been muted probably like eight years ago by Jamie, but she probably just wasn't following me. So she never would have had to put up the, but but I was definitely at that point. And so that's the thing you have to be really careful of is just like, once you learn about something, you start seeing it everywhere too. And it's really easy to fall into the trap of, of, of you learn it. So I would just say like, be very open-minded. Um, experiment a lot with your own body because one one way in which nutrition varies from poker is that everybody is different. Like we all have different genetics. Like one guy is able to tolerate one food and one person is not able to tolerate another food. You know, it's it's different. It's not poker where ace jack under the gun is going to have pretty much the same profitability for these people as long as they play it equally well nutrition, sleep, all these stuff, every, every circumstance is different. There's much more gray going on. You and I both have toddlers. Like we, we both know how, I'm sure, how our health and fitness and wellness has changed before a child and having a child. You physically had one. I only, I only have one kind of running around the house, but you had one growing inside your body that you had to extricate from your body and then, and then breastfeed it and raise it. And that takes a different toll on your body than, than me raising a child would have. Um, you know, even if it were the same child, everything is, is different. And there's certain things that are, are good. Like meditating probably is never going to really hurt you. You know, if you can find like 20 minutes to do some meditation, great. But, um, you know, in term, you know, if you can get a little bit more sleep, then great. But everything still has to be molded and lifestyle dependent. So especially within the realm of diet, where I think lots of study has been done and lots of science has been done on diet, a lot of it's conflicting. And the reason for that is, is that when people do studies, they do it on different people, right? So, you know, this study will study Japanese women in their 60s, and this study will have a control group that's college-aged kids, and this study will be a big study and have a big cross-section of society, but it's, it's epidemiological and it's not controlled, and, or maybe it's survey data. So if you're looking at these things scientifically, like you, you have to realize where the holes are in the science as well, that, that everybody's different. We've got a couple questions from Jason Simon, who says that he loves both of our podcasts, meaning The Grid and Dat Poker Podcast. And he asks you how your MMA training has impacted your poker mindset. Because, of course, when you got into MMA, you played a little bit less poker, but you still are out here 
every summer playing the 10K Limit Hold'em, the main event. Yeah, I mean, how has the training changed my poker? I mean, I think a lot of it is what we just talked about. I think I did learn a lot about nutrition science and sleep and how the body performs. And I think that did help me play poker and, you know, in some ways realize that the poker tournaments are an inherently kind of unhealthy thing. It's not a healthy thing to sit down for 10 hours under bright lights and, you know, but you do what you can to mitigate that and try to just do your best within that context and understand that it's not everything's good for you. I There was a period where I was super just obsessed with everything being healthy. And I think I've backed off a lot of that now and just not been, I'm a, I'm a little bit more flexible because you're going to do stuff like play a poker tournament until three in the morning you know, eating not great food and and sitting in an awkward position all the time. Likewise, you know, fighting isn't particularly good for one's health either. Getting punched in the face is really bad for you, as it turns out. On the other hand, like, you can do stuff for fun in this life. Um, and not everything has to be optimized for your health. Um, you just have to, like, th- I think there's a balance between doing only the fun things and doing only the, the discipline things. And somewhere in the middle falls probably where you want to be and other people are going to fiddle with that knob you know tune appropriately as they want to and so I'm maybe knuckle the knob now with the coronavirus yeah oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't fiddle with the door now too yeah much, just guys. have a long stick and uh and just move it back and forth but yeah people, people are just going to fiddle with their their hedonism versus their their discipline and, and wellness knobs but i mean I, I i always encourage people to be healthier i you know, I don't. I definitely don't encourage people to take up MMA, but um, you know, jujitsu. I've always been a fan. I tried to get you into jujitsu, but it turned out you were pregnant at the time. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, ah, secretly, probably not a bad idea, but it was probably a bad idea in that circumstance. But I think, I think it's a it's a fun physical problem solving puzzle, um, and and I think that's why I gravitated towards fighting as as an outlet for for after quote unquote poker. Because um, it, it was this, it was the, a mental challenge that I could also do with my body. Yeah, and, and you know, when you say you've kind of pulled back a little bit on the discipline knob, is there some example, like something that you would do now, besides play a poker tournament until 3 a.m., that back then you would have just like raised your eyebrows and like just kind of like felt kind of grossed out by? I, I mean, I think I still have residual trauma from these days. I mean, I think I still probably can't eat an ice cream cake without feeling some level of guilt about that. I mean, I think that's probably common for a lot of people. But I, I try to take like the, yeah, like you're nodding. And well, that's part, like, of the, that's part of the fun. I mean, I think for women, unfortunately, women are, you know, often very, are brought up in a way to feel a lot of guilt over eating, like sure. overeating and sweets. And I just, I just remember very clearly this experience of waking up one morning and I was like teaching a chess camp with a male grandmaster and we were both eating breakfast and he's a you know a pretty fit guy and he just like devoured like two cherry danishes and I was just like if I did that I would feel so weird about it like not the fact that it would would be kind of sickening but like I don't think I could ever just do that and not feel like really like guilty about it yeah it's it's a tough thing because I think in the society we do we make I mean I I don't want to say poor Joseph because like food scientists have designed food in a way to be extremely palatable for us, right? Like we're, our brains are still from whatever, 10,000 to a million years ago, and they haven't changed that much while our food has gotten just incredibly palatable over the last like couple hundred years where we can make delicious cherry danishes. If you turned off that guilt switch in your brain, you could probably eat 12 of them, right? Like, and, and you know, you would feel sick afterwards, but like just the, the dopamine hit that it's giving your brain as the, the perfect combination of sugar and fat touches your tongue and just sends those signals to your brain that says more and more and more. So I think you don't want to feel like guilty about the things that you put in your mouth at the same time, you don't want to use that lack of feeling guilt as being like, oh, like, sure, of course I'm going to wash down 12 cherry danishes and a, with, with some Mountain Dew. Like, because that's just really bad and you're going to get sick and you're not going to feel very good about life. And it's a really hard thing. You know, you asked me about discipline earlier and people in general find it's really hard because we're not wired to think in the long term. We're still like, you know, hairless monkeys that are that that are still in theoretically the back of our brain is wondering, are we going to get the next meal? Like, is that cheetah going to maul me? Like we're, we're only thinking about our survival in the moment. And so we, you know, if we were out there in the wild, like a jelly donut doesn't appear in the wild. Like it doesn't. You have to hunt for your food. You have to pick berries off of trees and you don't get that many berries off of a bush. Like you've ever been out hiking 
and you found like a blueberry bush. It's not like a package of blueberries you get at the supermarket. You just get like a couple blueberries. And so we food is so abundant and it's so hyper palatable. And the, the food companies have made food in such a way that it's more and more delicious and you just want to eat more and more of it. So you have to be mindful of that and say like, okay, let's let's back off. Maybe I should only eat one of these. Or maybe I shouldn't eat any at all this week uh, because I had a lot of them last week. At the same time, you don't want to be of the mind that that you literally feel like you're a worse person if you've eaten this. And I think I was at that place. You know, you might have been at the place, and and we probably all know people who are at that place. And um, orthorexia is the technical word for it. And I was accused of it many times uh, in my life. I but I never thought of myself as orthorexic. I just sort of thought. Is this achieving my ends? And and when I was fighting, my end was be the best fighter that I could be. And and nothing else really mattered. And now that I've sort of taken a step back from the sport, it's like, well, you know, I still have my body, my longevity. I want to be like a healthy, uh, vibrant 60-year-old when, when you know, my kid is, you know, I want to be able to, to beat my kid at basketball when she's 20. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that if I don't eat these things. Orthorexic, that mean what does that mean? Orthorexia, so from, from you know, so you've heard of anorexia. So, it was, so an is, I think, the Latin for, like, not having something. So ortho is, I believe, the Latin for correct. It's a... Uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? So it's over, overly correct eating, I guess it is. It's an eating disorder that's some, basically that like, I won't eat anything ever that's not healthy for me. Right, right. Like having little flexibility. That's interesting. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, it's okay to feel bad about eating two jelly donuts, you know, because that's probably really yeah. bad for you. <laughs> but that the feeling bad about it should just be based on rationality. Like, oh, I'm going to feel bad later. If I continue like this, I'm going to have excess weight I have to carry around. Not like this feeling of shame that you're becoming yeah. like less of a woman or like, you know, and right. that's unfortunately, I think that is what a lot of women feel when they overeat, that it becomes more psychological and less rational. Yeah. But the, the way you're describing it, you know, or, or it just to be mindful logical. that the act doesn't make the person right. Like, you know, you you might have eaten something bad that doesn't make you bad or it doesn't make you a bad eater or it doesn't, you know, it's, 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 it's just about that decision-making opponent. I played three-deuce offsuit really bad in that hand. Does that make me a bad poker player? Well, maybe it did in 2006 and maybe it does, but, you know, it, it certainly, it's not symbolic of everything. You know, maybe I played every hand after that three-deuce offsuit really well. You know, maybe it did, but it but it doesn't matter, right? Say that hand was different. It's always different when you play a hand badly and you end up like scooping all the chips. But you know, let's suppose that hand went badly and I ended up doubling up Eric, and you know, I bust out of the tournament five hands later. You know, I would just feel like, oh, what a dummy I am, what a terrible person. But there's there's no point in dwelling on a decision that you've made once you've made it. You're just like, I'll do better next time, and just try to just try to be in the moment and just you know, in poker, we're, you know, just we always we always advise you know any of us who have dealt with novice players, you know, okay, you played a hand bad, just just play the next one as, as best you can. Play the one after that the best as you can. And, and that's all that matters. And I think you can take a similar approach with the health and lifestyle things in your life. Okay, you take too many jelly donuts today, like do better tomorrow. We skip the gym a week in a row, let's start today. Like we can always make a decision right now to start no matter no matter where we are, you know, no matter what bad things we've done, we've all we've all done things we're not proud of. Like, let's just be better going forward, right? And that's incredibly difficult to do. Although I have to go back to your hand. I feel like everything that you did in that hand does have some logic attached to it. Like, you know, you just want to raise any two cards because you notice that your opponent didn't actually know, know that they were the big blinds. So you're going to get a lot of fold equity, particularly on the flop. Like, I think that even though it's like 15 years later, you're being a little hard on yourself. But um, I know you, you mentioned very briefly in your intro the, the fact that you have no blockers and the fact that everybody folded after him meant that um, he's more likely to have an ace, which is true. Actually, he did have an ace. Yep. Um, that, but that's the kind of thing that people certainly weren't thinking about back then, that hard card removal type. I did think about it to some extent because, I mean, I, I got to hang around with some, some pretty good theorists uh, back in the day. I was very lucky to be blessed with a group of friends that were pretty ahead of the curve and knew some things before most people. But yeah, I mean, I think even back then I knew that like if everybody folds, because, you know, I go back to my, um, my history with Limit Hold'em and the the hands that you can open with 
in the small blind, after everybody's folded to you at a full ring table, is so much different than in pure heads up. Um, and I'm sure that's true for No Limit as well. So there was some recognition of that stuff at the time that like, oh, if, if eight people have folded, like the average hand strength is significantly better because you've removed a lot of trash from those eight folded hands. But yeah, it's certainly not the worst hand, but it, it for, for whatever reason, it just really sticks out as memorable in my mind is that time that I decided to raise in you know, for no good reason with three days off. That's funny because, you know, I've had guests on who talk about hands from back then and they they very honestly are like, yeah, I didn't know what a blocker was. But you being, you know, friends with people like Bill Chen and Matt Harlenko, um, who Jared were, Ankerman, yeah. yeah, like people, they were they were just so far ahead. And, and a lot of my success was just attributed to, I mean, all my success in life is just like attributed to the fact that I've managed to hang out with people who are smarter than me. And, you know, there's that expression, like, if you're the average of the, the five people you spend the most time with, like, I managed to pull down the average significantly and just be really lucky to hang out with my group. I mean, my, my first real boss in the working world was Isai Scheinberg. I mean, like, you want to, you know, you want to talk about, like, and then once I, once I quit working for PokerStars and quit working for Isai, like you said, I, I got to hang around, like, Bill Chen and Jared Ankerman and Gavin Griffin and Matt Harvalenko and people like that to play poker with. And then... Um, after that, now I had enough money that I could go train MMA for fun and like seek out a lot of great MMA coaches. Like I, you just get really lucky. Again, like I, I don't, I feel like I'm coming back to the same thing over and over and I apologize. But like when I really sit back and think about it and talk to a live person and talking to you about it, like how lucky I am to been around the people that I've been around for my life. Because if you, if this is a simulation, like if we are living in a simulation and you run my life like a million times, like I'm clearly in the top like 0.01% of life, living the top 0.01% of potential outcomes that I'm in right now. I feel like being a parent of an amazing child, you can't instinctively think that you're like in the top 1% because you know, your, your kid is perfect. And how could it be better? <laughs> right? It's true. I mean, I did believe this, I think, even before, even before, before, yeah. before she was born. But yeah, I mean, now you think, you know, you've, I've, I've got a, a beautiful two-year-old who's just smart and clever and goofy and wacky and at times drives me crazy. But, you know, I have, I have so much more feeling for, and I'm sure this has hit you more too, when you see other parents who've had you know, unfortunate luck with their children, whether it's it's an illness or God forbid a death, that really like cuts close to the bone when you see somebody who doesn't have as fortunate an outcome. Because because like, I'm sure like you as a parent can empathize. Like you just can't imagine life without your child now. Like I mean, it's not all roses. Like it's hard, and some days you're like, ah, like I I you know why did I sign up for this? Now that you have a kid, to imagine. Imagine any kind of harm befalling your child is just like the worst thing that you could possibly even think of, right? I'm sorry to even bring this up and, and bring a dark cloud over this interview. But again, if we're, if we're talking about gratitude, I mean, you got to wake up every morning and just be, be thankful your kid is safe and healthy. Absolutely. The stakes just go up. Like happier, I'm happier, but the chances of uh, the, the anxiety, like I feel like I'm much happier after ha becoming a mom, but anxiety has also gone up. Yeah. Because you're happier, but that means you have more to lose. That's like the human condition. But I just think that with the ranking, like what number we are in the multiverse, I think fortunately humans are not that good at doing that. And that's because <laughs> by nature, especially in the United States, um, we, we tend to be optimistic people. So I think it's wonderful that people are on average going to over overrate their because in these all of these different multiverses, there are like other children. But like, who cares <laughs> about them? Because you're in this one and you have your angel. Yes. Right. So that, that's a good thing about being human. Like if we were actually like super rational and able to like rank things exactly and figure out that we were actually only on like, you know, 62 percent or something, that would actually be kind of terrible. Right. Uh, I mean. <laughs> but speaking of the math house, which was the, the, the moniker back in, I guess, what? five to ten years ago when you were um, living in a house for the World Series of Poker with all these great geniuses of the game. I I think it's really hilarious now because now every poker click is a math click. Oh, yeah. Just to think that now that you actually had that math moniker. Totally, totally, right? People have this idea that, like, I'm a mathy person. I'm not a mathy person. I just, like, got... I have an Asian last name, and I, I spent time with people who are mathy. Like, so I just kind of get lumped into the group. But, yeah, like, it's, it's funny, like... There, there used to be debates in the mid 2000s about whether it was better to be a math player or a feel player. You know, there were significant debates whether online poker was harder to beat or live poker was hard to beat. And you know, these seem silly now, but yeah, there was a very strong belief in the in the mid aughts that that 
like you could beat poker without math like that you didn't need to know math and um you know i imagine is even stronger before then before i started playing poker but i can't imagine ever doing it same thing about my mma like i couldn't imagine just trying to get by on my raw talent in poker like i would have failed so hard i'd <laughs> i you know if i didn't think about poker obsessively like i don't think i was a, an elite poker player really by any stretch but i was again good enough to make a living and just smart enough at a time where people did things very poorly and you know i made money i didn't spend it frivolously i think a lot of pros of that era aren't in the best financial situation now or they're, they're not in the financial situation they could be because you know really poor spending and especially i think investment decisions um that were made in that period because it seemed like the free money was going to last forever and of course with hindsight it's easy to look back and think how could you think it would last forever like that people just throw their money away at the poker tables and that the u.s government was never going to intervene in online poker but it did seem like that as hard as it is to believe like 2006 even even after uiga party poker pulled out but poker stars didn't and the games were still very good on poker stars and if you had access to them i'm sure even better on party you know, and, and, other, and other European sites as well, like it just, the games continued to be very, very, very good all the way up to Black Friday. And so there was no reason for people to exercise discretion with their money. And I think some of my generation of poker pros did. And a lot of those are people that you see not playing poker anymore. You know, they've either moved on to other jobs or done other things or, or they've gone to school. Um, you mentioned the math house. I mean, we've got to people who got their PhDs, sub, you know, Matt and Jared subsequent to playing poker. And that's just something they did and they, they chose to do. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you managed to win money at poker back then and already be a good poker player and managed not to blow it on the proverbial strippers and coke, um, then you did okay. And do you have any tips for people on bringing up the average of the top five people that you talk to or interact with? I mean, obviously family is, you know, not accepting family and the people that you love. But when you're talking about like expanding your professional network and getting into situations like the one that you got, any tips on that? Or is that just like a natural personality thing? Just be stupidly lucky um, like me. I mean, I'll tell you how I met Isai Scheinberg. I used to post on the Usenet forum, rec.gambling.poker. Um, so before there was 2 plus 2 or before social media or anything, there was a thing called Usenet, um, which was basic. I mean, I don't even know how to properly describe a news server, but it was just a, a message board that people logged on to and it was probably only inhabited by a few hundred people um i used to post on there about strategy questions um this, this is things that people all take for granted now you know for the last 10 years but it was uncommon then people just wanted to chit chat about poker i would post strategy questions all the time i would answer other people's strategy questions i would talk about poker and the game in general at large and one day i got an email from isai who didn't really post on rgp but just liked my posts and said like hey i'm doing a thing would you be interested uh in, in coming to work for me and i said sure i'm a 19 year old kid who loves poker it's a dream job um and i said yes and uh same with meeting people like like bill and jared um i was online at at a time where not very many people were online and i think if you were a clear thinker and a reasonable person in those days you you really stood out now i think it if anything it's even easier to reach people right because you can just shoot your shot on sh on social media and um, you can connect with people i mean you don't want to do it in a way that's obnoxious or annoying and it looks like it's you're just doing it to advance your personal career but if you if you provide value for other people i do believe the right people will see that message and come along but you do have to provide value for other people and you do have to do it out of a place that's out of passion and out of love because i didn't i didn't post on rgp back then because i wanted to to get involved with an online gaming site or because I wanted to meet uh, world-class theoreticians in poker. I did it because I just was in love with the game. I was absolutely in love with the game the way that many people are now and they just obsess about the game. And now it's a much more saturated market with people who are really analytical and want to break down everything. And now that's, that's really commonplace. But if you can provide value for people, whether it's online, in person, however you do, you'll, you'll end up re meeting the right network of people if you're authentic and people see that authenticity. And like I said, just 
I was stupidly lucky. <laughs> wow, yeah, Isai emailing you because of a, a post. But I will say like something I recognize in you that I feel like is a great quality is this ability to not feel like you're worse or better than anyone. Um, you know, it's a cliche. I don't think I'm better than anyone. I don't think I'm worse than anyone. But I, you know, like a lot of cliches, it has so much beauty and truth in it. And I feel like, you know, my parents really did a good job trying to instill that in me. And that's helped me tremendously with networking. Because first of all, it makes you not snobby, which is good because there's a lot of times people who are down to earth and you know they might be the most talented person in the room then it's also extremely valuable when there's people who's, who are like really famous and wealthy because they don't want like they're very suspicious of like the sycophantic person i agree you, you definitely I, I would say most people are probably uncomfortable with sycophants the people who aren't uncomfortable with them are definitely people you should stay away from right again like you know just just approach people as if they're people, and and you know if you're if you're a fan of someone, it's it's perfectly fine to say like, hey, I'm a big fan of what you do, and um, you know, and and I have this idea, and I have this thought, and just you know, the person may not want to spend time with you, or they may not want to speak with you, but maybe they will. And if if you just come from a place that's like genuine and trying to add value to, again to people's lives, I think. The, most of the time, the right things will fall into place. Absolutely. Well, you know, Terrence, it's been so wonderful chatting to you about three dues off. The time really flew by. And um, I know there's a lot of ways to contact you that I've, I mean, not to contact you, to follow your work that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Which one do you think is the uh, the best way to stay posted with you? Probably just Twitter at tchanpoker. I do, I wish I updated my blog more frequently. So you mentioned terrencechanpoker.com is my blog. I used to blog every day almost. I used to blog about every poker tournament that I played every thought that I was feeling but Twitter with its like you know what was 140 characters now 280 it seems to have really kind of killed the blogging not completely but to some extent as a platform because people want their thoughts out there expressed to as wide an audience as possible which is usually something like Twitter or, or Facebook or other social media and at the same time they don't want to put a lot of effort into it so I think like Twitter really hit upon the intersection of slightly lazy but also wants exposure um, for your thoughts. So yeah, those are, those are the two best ways. And um, yeah, I'm one of the three hosts of, of Dat Poker Podcast, which uh, I've been enjoying doing with Daniel. And that's a Dat Poker Podcast, of course, that you can follow on all the major um, podcast networks, like just like The Grid, Apple, Stitcher, etc. And yeah, at T-Chan Poker, taking the nut low, um, well, along with seven deuce off, we have three deuce off clicked off the grid. That's a big click off. So thank you very much to Tarrant. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.